live in an increasingly globalized world. Everything is connected, which means that if something goes wrong in one place, it could quickly spread to, well, everywhere on the planet. And it's not like we can just put a stop to globalization. But are we prepared for its consequences? Are we just letting globalization happen, or are we effectively controlling it? Today, I'm talking to Ian Golden, who, along with Mike Mariatheson, wrote the book The Butterfly Defect, how globalization creates systemic risks and what to do about them. Ian Golden served as Vice President of the World Bank, and he's currently Professor of Globalization and Development at the University of Oxford. He's undoubtedly one of the world's experts in globalization, and I'm really pleased to be able to speak to him about his ideas. Ian, thanks for taking the time out to have a chat with me. It's a pleasure. Ian, you are very careful in your book to point out both the positives and the negatives of globalization. But are you really so uh, 50-50 in your, in your thinking about it? My own sense is that what we've seen over the last 25 years is the most rapid economic and social development that the world has ever seen um, in history, and certainly for a comparable period, more rapid than any period in history. And any, any measure you look at, um, life, average life expectancy, infant mortality, nutrition, income, uh, whatever measure you look at, you're likely to see uh, for the overwhelming majority of people, and of course these averages hide uh, widening inequality, but you're likely to see progress in human development. So that's a reason for optimism. The reason for pessimism is because of the uh, often unintended consequences of this hyperglobalization. So we have, um, for example, climate change, antimicrobial resistance, depletion of water, obesity, uh, and then some of the internal results of the way that this is developed. And I'm thinking here of growing inequality, rising risk of pandemics, cyber attacks, terrorist attacks, the financial crisis, and all of these unintended consequences of hyper-complexity and integration. Um, politics is becoming more fragmented, and the gap between the world's ability to manage its affairs and what's really happening in terms of on-the-ground developments is widening. And so that is the cause of worry. Is it 50-50? Um, my own view is that if we look backwards, uh, the balance is that the glass is half full and reasonably full. In other words, there's been huge progress. If we look forward and say what the next 25 years likely to bring, is this likely to be sustained? I would tend towards a feeling of more pessimism. In other words, the problem is we need to rapidly learn how to manage this highly integrated system. And that's really the focus of the butterfly defect. Yeah, let's get, to, let's get into that. Let's just, um, let's look first at the idea of systemic risk. Uh, I mean, you argue that the, the 2008 financial crisis was the first systemic crisis of the 21st century. So first of all, let's uh, look, what, what is this systemic risk? I differentiate systemic risks from other forms of risks by the fact that they cascade over either sectoral boundaries, 
So something that starts in finance leads to, for example, the collapse of production uh, and employment, but also because systemic uh, challenges and systemic risks cascade over national borders. So for me, systemic risk is um, a, a type of risk that cannot be confined to a particular sector or a particular country or even region. It leads to changes which go beyond its initial point of um, dislocation. So the subprime crisis, for example, of finance in a particular part of the US leads to a global financial crisis. The global financial crisis in turn leads to all sorts of second order effects in terms of impacts, which we continue to feel to this day on, for example, all of our economies. Yeah, since this 2008 crash, I mean, well, actually, since then, have we gone back to business as usual? Or, or I mean, or have we kind of implemented real lasting changes to the system to prevent it from happening again? I'm very concerned that uh, the crisis has not led to the sorts of reforms which I think are required to stop the next financial crisis. In other words, I think it's very likely that there will be another financial crisis. Um, what, what one really wants, I suppose, is that crises lead to the sorts of reforms which prevent them happening again. And we haven't seen that with this one. I think there's a degree of complacency um, that somehow it's been mastered with the sorts of reforms that we've seen central banks and international institutions undertake. But if you ask, um, I think, what the root causes of the next financial crisis could be, my sense is that these have not been addressed. And so I think it is a cause of concern. We'll definitely return to this in a moment. But I guess we should uh, note here at the start that you, although you are a, an economist, uh, you're, you're, it's not just a financial book. You're, you're talking I mean, it's about the wider issues of globalization. Yes, the book covers numerous areas, pandemic, infrastructure, um, ecology, environment, supply chains, business systems, etc. And what I was really trying to do is use the financial crisis as um, a wake-up call. So what lessons can we learn from finance that will also help us manage pandemics or climate change or other uh, impacts of globalization and vice versa? What can we take away? from our understanding of the management of these other systemic risks to better manage finance. So it absolutely is a highly interdisciplinary book, which does not restrict itself um, to, to finance. And the real ambition of this is to say, how do we manage complexity? How do we stop our systems, which are hyper-connected, also leading to contagion, and cascading risk. How do we make sure an airport, for example, only becomes a conveyor of the goods of travel and tourism and movement of people and not the bads, which is the spreading of pandemics around the world? How do we ensure that our cyber systems lead to information flows but not into crime and collapse of our systems? How do we ensure that the electrical systems similarly do so? Um, and the, the, the answer is, I think, really understanding, uh, firstly, how the nature of risk is evolving very rapidly. So, for example, I would imagine that the next financial crisis is unlikely to come from the collapse of a bank and more likely to come, or just as likely to come, 
from, for example, a pandemic in New York or London or a Hurricane Sandy that's bigger and destroys part of Wall Street or some other sort of event. And then the question is, how do you build resilience against that? And it's about understanding uh, more data is not going to be helpful. In fact, what happened in the financial crisis is that people were blinded by the data. One of the startling things about finance is there's more data and more management than there is in virtually any other system. It's a highly regulated system with tens of thousands of people with very good PhDs who are responsible for firefighting um, in the financial system and managing it. And all of them, virtually all of them, certainly the institutions, were blindsided. Um, so it's about understanding the evolution and the connectivity and then de designing these networks so that you don't have any one place as opposed to any one bank, uh, for example, but any one place. Okay, that, that's what you mean by... To fail. Sorry, that's what you meant by uh, like a, a, an incident happening, happening in New York causing such an uh, effect to the financial system because it is located in that one place. That's right. The, and one of the things that's happened with hyper-globalization is geographical concentration of risk. Um, and geography has become extremely important. And the concentration through, for many reasons, of server farms, of banking systems, uh, of airport traffic, etc., in a small number of very critical uh, places becomes a great vulnerability for the system as a whole. Uh, before again we move on to this analysis, there was one other thing that cropped up in your book that I, I guess, um, well, not that it took me by surprise, but I found it fascinating that talking about a uh, talking about the issues of globalization and uh, like as as we become more globally connected, large numbers of people seem to want to go in the opposite direction. And when we see sort of local politics becoming more important and a rise of nationalism. Why? Yes, this, this, this is a real tension which threatens to, to be a, a, a great source of new systemic risk, as I talk in, about this in, in, in the book. Um, I think people feel that the world is out of control, that their futures are more uncertain, that their politicians make them promises that they can't deliver on. Um, and they're right in all of those respects. Um, and the reason is that the forces that will shape our future, your future, listeners' future, my future, um, are beyond any national politician's control. They will be shaped by global demographics, by pandemics, by financial crises, by climate change, by technological changes and other changes that come from somewhere else, from beyond our borders. And the response, I think, to of many people to what they perceive of as, I think, a growing threat, a growing uncertainty, is to try and build walls around our society, to try and protect ourselves, to return to some past where we were more in control over our societies and their future. And so we see, I think, rising trade protectionism, certainly. We see rising nationalism in politics, uh, keep the migrants out. Um, and we also see it in economic um, policy. This is, this is dangerous because it's also associated with the disempowering of international institutions and of coordination, as, for example, symbolized in Scotland wanting to pull out of the UK um, or the UK uh, wanting to hold a referendum on membership of Europe. And that means that we are less engaged in coordinating with others on the forces that will shape our future. Uh, and that means 
the future is even more uncertain and we get into a vicious circle where the more we try and be local, the more we're unable, in fact, to shape the forces that determine our futures. And I think this is a very strong political tendency that we see across Europe and we see it in North America as well at the moment. Uh, and it's one that's likely to lead to weaker management of globalization. It could also lead to higher levels of protectionism, less effective management of things like climate change. And that's particularly disastrous, I think, for poor people in poor countries, because they always are the most vulnerable to these global forces. Your book uh, talks a lot about complexity. And uh, this, I guess, what we're talking about ties in to, to what you call like, the, the erosion of responsibility. So maybe could you also explain what you mean when you say that uh, the globalization of our actions leads to, so indirectly to their effects? Yes, um, I think there is an erosion of sense of responsibility. And that's because as systems become more and more complex and integrated, cause and effect become more difficult to discern. It's very difficult to understand what one place or one person, one country even, is responsible for something that affects our lives, be it a pandemic or be it a financial crisis or be it climate change, be it technological change, be it unemployment, etc. Um, and there's just many more actors from many more different places and they have unintended impacts on each other. So this problem of complexity and cause and effect, finding the, the data points, the needles in the haystack, becomes bigger and bigger. And that's why uh, I think it's very important not to be blinded by the blizzard of data. Intuition becomes more important, judgment becomes more important. And in the book, I talk about the different ways that one has to manage complexity. And I think that's absolutely crucial. You are very critical of our current international institutions like the IMF and, and the World Health Organizations, saying in, in effect that they're designed for a different time and that they, they do need to be radically reformed. Yes, I've spent a good deal of my life um, working for these institutions uh, and uh, many, many hundreds, if not thousands of hours in their committee meetings and um, as part of them. So I, I think it's a system which I know reasonably well. And I've become, I think, disillusioned with their capability of meeting these challenges that I see facing the world. The reason you want international institutions is because there are certain issues which cannot be resolved by any one country alone or even a small cluster of countries uh, on their own. And that's the purpose and, of these institutions. But if they have proved that they unfit for purpose, they cannot deal with it. You wouldn't call the Security Council if you were being bombed in Aleppo in Syria, for example, uh, with any sense of optimism that they would help you. Um, there are many issues, cyber, climate, migration, that don't actually have an institutional home. And then there are others that have extraordinarily strong uh, institutional homes, like finance. And we've seen that despite the brilliance of the many people and their high salaries in institutions like the central banks and treasuries and IMF of the world, that they didn't stop the financial crisis happening, nor did the WHO with all its expertise um, stop pandemic in West Africa. And so the question is, why not? And the answer, I think, is not because they don't have skilled people, they do. Uh, the answer is because they are being starved of resources by us, the national governments, 
They are not being mandated to reform. Reform processes are stymied. And as an international community, our governments are not putting on them, I think, the required uh, demands for change. And those demands need to be made to get them up to um, speed so they can deal with 21st century challenges, and particularly to manage hyperglobalization and its spillover consequences. At the same time, if one's placing demands on them, it has to come with a commitment, a commitment, I think, to put in strong leadership and to give them the necessary resources. And all of those things are lacking. So whereas I used to beat up on the institutions and feel that they've let us down hopelessly, and that is the case, I now feel they are not to blame for that. It's really the governments, it's our governments who are the critical shareholders of these institutions who must be held accountable. So what does that mean then? What I mean, in terms of uh, changing massive institutions like the IMF and World Health Organization, is it just a matter of waiting for the next giant catastrophe for these changes to happen? Well, as we've seen with the financial crisis, um, catastrophe on its own does not guarantee reform. And, that, and this is a, a terrible tragedy because um, the devastation that the financial crisis caused, one would hope, would have a silver lining in ensuring it does not happen again through reform, as happened, for example, um, after the Second World War with the creation of systems to stop another world war, uh, which so far, at least, have, have, have proved worthy. It's not just, I guess, these massive organizations either. You, you comment on a failure on every level of governance to even understand or acknowledge this highly complex nature of globalization. Yes, I think there is an intellectual failure. There's a, we, we're sort of trapped in a 60, 70-year-old Westphalian world where national governments determine their citizens' future and then every now and again uh, their ambassadors get together uh, in talk shops uh, to talk about common interests. That's sort of the model uh, that governs us. And um, we've moved on the ground, as all of us know, from everything in our lives to a world where everything we consume, we produce, we understand, uh, transcends national borders. Uh, and this divorce between the way the world works, and particularly the way the systems like the cyber systems and finance systems, food systems, etc., work, climate systems, health systems work, and their management. Uh, is getting greater and greater as the world gets more and more integrated. Of course, the other big change over the last 25 years is there's two uh, and a half billion more people. Um, that means it's not only about more and more connectivity, uh, it's about more density. There's just much more proximity within our systems between people um, and around the world. So um, the degrees of separation of citizens around the world have uh, collapsed, but the politics doesn't reflect this in any way. We're in this highly, in fact, more fragmented world, and there's really only one region of the world, and that's Europe, which went through an episode of integration, but that too is being uh, challenged now. So um, this is, this is, I think, something which requires a different understanding. Not everything can be managed or should be managed by everyone. That is not what the lesson of globalization is. I think what we need to understand is where are the particular points that need to be managed? 
a dozen countries account for 90% of climate em greenhouse emissions. So you don't need 202 countries involved, but you do need strong action from those dozen. So what particular places do and how they respond to the globalization challenge um, needs to be understood, and then how you build resilience into the system. Yeah, let's let's move into global governance and uh, and also looking at some of your suggested solutions for this. Because are we actively managing this process of globalization, or, or is it just happening? And are we going along for the ride? I think it is um, just happening. It's almost anarchic. Uh, certain forces have been unleashed. Some of them are technological, like the internet and uh, transport systems, etc. Others are economic driven um, but I think the system is evolving um, by itself and governments because they're increasingly fragmented short term in their outlook uh, and business is also increasingly short term in their outlook and that's again a result of particular signals that need to be changed um, are, are for most part in most societies uh, just being pulled along by this extremely rapidly evolving um, and globally encompassing uh, dynamic. However, uh, the purpose of the butterfly defect, um, the subtitle is how globalization creates systemic risks and what to do about it. The purpose is to say we have choices. There are policy and other implications for us as individuals, for our societies, for cities, um, for governments and for international institutions, for NGOs uh, and for others, there are choices that we can make. Either the system will continue in this sort of almost anarchic way with growing inequality, increasingly dysfunctional outcomes, so that the extraordinary benefits that it's provided will unravel uh, because of both ecological and social um, dysfunctionality, or we can manage it. And then there's every reason to be optimistic that uh, globalization and integration can spread benefits on, on a sustained basis. Uh, I really do feel the choices are ours, but we can only make the choices if we understand what's going on here. But if we can't really rely on, on national governments, as you say, or on our current international organizations, where are we able to make these solutions? I think we can increasingly... Uh, rely on uh, other actors and creative coalitions of actors. If you if you focus on particular questions and say, how would you deal with climate change? You know, you, the answer doesn't have to be we need a global agreement where all 202 countries sign off. What we does have to say is we need the top emitters of the world to stop emitting urgently. And what that, that many of them are, for example, the US, let's say the US government does not sign off on a uh, protocol in Paris in December 2015. But let's say the biggest cities like New York and Los Angeles and Chicago do, and the biggest states and some very big firms sign off on various targets uh, to reduce their emissions. You, you must probably account for 60, 70% of US emissions in the process. Similarly, um, around the world, I think one could do the same thing. So the role of cities, the role of businesses, the role of states in the U.S., particularly in a very federal system, becomes extremely important. And focusing on critical actors. 
When we're talking about these issues, uh, especially the issues of the complexity of globalization, what is it that most people don't seem to understand? Or, or uh, what is the mindset, I guess, that is most important to change? I think, um, well, there's, <laughs> there, there are different sorts of people. There are people that believe fervently in globalization and market forces that I think have a view which is rather benign of a sort of, um, this is great, it's benefiting people, and if you just wait long enough, there'll be a trickle down and everyone will be pulled out of poverty and the world will be a good place to be. I think what they don't appreciate is that the system is has brought uh, great effects but is inherently unstable because there are these emergent dimensions which are the result of globalization. In growing inequality is the result of globalization. Higher risk of pandemics is the result of globalization. Rising climate change threat is the result of globalization and so on. So you just let the system carry on as it is, you get all of these things, plus you get extinction of uh, you know, the oceans and many other negative spillovers. So globalization requires management. On the other hand, you get the anti-globalization lobby, which basically blames globalization for everything and wants to be protectionist, local, nationalist. I think that is equally uh, misinformed because actually globalization is the reason for the most rapid progress in human development in history. It is the reason why more people have escaped poverty than any period in history, that life expectancy has increased, etc. And it is also the basis of the solutions, because if we're going to have solutions for climate change or for pandemics or cyber attacks or financial crises or whatever, they're going to have to be integrated solutions that go beyond the interests of any one national uh, country. Uh, And that ability to understand the good, the bad and the ugly sides of globalization and then appreciate, well, how do you mitigate, minimize, build resilience against the bads and harvest more effectively the goods for society is, I think, what, what, what's at the heart of this debate. Ian, I really appreciate you taking the time out to have a chat with me. Uh, it's been a great pleasure, Craig, and thank you very much for having me on your program. You have been listening to Ian Golden, former Vice President of the World Bank and Professor of Globalization and Development at the University of Oxford. He, along with Mike Mariatheson, are the authors of the book, The Butterfly Defect, how globalization creates systemic risks and what to do about them. And you've been listening to me, Craig Barfoot, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Ciao.